Welcome to this episode of We the Voters. As always, we work to lift up the concerns of all voters. If you would like for us to discuss an issue that is near and dear to your heart, please visit our website at pointcast.news and let us know in the comments section. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about environmental equity. Environmental equity means protection from environmental hazards, as well as access to environmental benefits, regardless of income, race, and any other characteristics. We will be talking about this with our guest, Joelle Jenkins. Thank you so much, Joelle, for being with us today. I really appreciate having you on. For sure. Now, Joelle, you are a socio-environmental researcher and an activist, as well as an avid bird watcher. Tell us about the work that you do and your love for bird watching. So um, in my undergrad degree, I was a McNair scholar at the University of Northern Colorado. And my research primarily looks at environmental identity because a lot of the time, um, even up till today, it's gotten better, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, of course. Um, People assume that black people don't like being out in nature or they don't really associate blackness with nature when really blackness can be synonymous with nature. We can define it in any way with we want, basically. And um, so that's a lot of what my research focuses on. I'm about to go to graduate school for that. Um, and with bird watching, you know, I wasn't into it at first, <laughs> but you know, I've always loved nature and just seeing wildlife and, you know, of course, how humans have impacted our ability to interact with it and just the health of the planet has helped me get more into just bird watching and just immersing myself in natural spaces. Yeah, well, that's excellent, actually. And you're right. A lot of people, I know my family, all outdoorsy. I try to bring them indoors. (laughs) Now, there's a lot of discussion around environmental equity, but this is really an issue that's been with us for a long time. Wouldn't you agree with that? For sure. Most definitely. How have you heard about it in your experience? Well, um... (laughs) like just injustices within like environmental spaces and all that other stuff. Yes. Yes. Um, so I would say like, you know, from a young age, I've always been interested in nature. And even till this day, I get people saying like, Oh, well, you don't look like (laughs) an environmental science major or just stuff like that. I've always been interested in that. And like, you know, I didn't have the representation I had growing up, you know, being in Colorado. um, I don't really see that many black people like, you know, in the same major before I switched my major at UNC, I was an ecology major at first. Mm -hmm. I was the only black woman. Um, yeah. And I was like often the only black person or black woman, like in ornithology, which is the study of birds. birds, Yeah. 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 And so, um, you know, it was usually like, I was the only one. And then like, people would always say like discriminate, discriminatory things towards me and stuff. And then, you know, taking classes when, after I switched majors from ecology to environmental science or environmental and sustainability studies, um, I took a class with my, uh, advisor, Dr. Chelsea Romulo, and she included environmental justice and taught a lot about that. And she includes a lot of that in her material across different classes. And so I was like, wow, this is like what I want to do because in ecology, ecology, it was kind of, it it was a lot to deal with because, you know, I wanted to talk about social justice, but I also wanted to be in nature. And I felt like I was always forced to leave the social justice part out because what I've noticed about STEM is it's just so, objective all the time no one wants to talk about race and how everything connects and so yeah 
Right. And people often don't understand that there is a connection. In fact, at a recent conference in Michigan titled Rebuilding Trust, Reimagining Justice and Removing Barriers, Mm -hmm. Tremaine Phillips, a member of the Michigan Public Service Commission, spoke to the conference about the need to examine past infrastructure policy decisions in order to make future decisions. Now, what she said basically at the conference is that those in power need to inject equity into the infrastructure decisions as they move forward. But we are also trying to unravel or they should also try to unravel the inequities and uh, discrimination and systemic racism that has been placed into the infrastructure. And that's really big right now with everyone talking about infrastructure planning. Now, do you agree with this basic take on infrastructure improvements that essentially states that environmental equity has to be one of its goals? Uh, yes, I do agree with it. Um, one thing I've noticed about a lot of um, spaces that are often white trying to improve their DEI initiatives is just like, <laughs> it's not really like inclusive. And by that, I mean, you know, for example, I remember one time I was showing someone about my research and they were like, oh, it's so sad that you have to do this work. And I was like, first off, like, why is that a problem that I like? Well, who else would do the work? I mean, (laughs) yeah. And it's, you know, a lot of approaches these days, it's like very white savior, like, you know, (laughs) and just giving equity is all about giving us the resources, but also allowing us to share or eat a piece of pie at the table. But at the same time, we should be able to create our own tables and there shouldn't be any issues about it because that's oftentimes what we had to do. Right, exactly, exactly. And and, you know, sometimes people try to skinny the discussion down to just having access to clean air and water, but it's much more, isn't it? Yeah. And that's what I've noticed in the other article, the CPR article, when they were talking about defining environmental justice. Let me pull up a quote real quick because I like highlighted it. It was basically saying, it it was a whole, it was a section about how do you define environmental justice? And Mm -hmm. uh, one of the people said, he's like, I think legislators might get overwhelmed by seeing a map that all the communities qualified as disproportionately impacted um, communities. And she said, I think we should start with air quality and move from there. And like, (laughs) that kind of like made me irritated because I'm like, we don't have the luxury of thinking of one thing at a time. What they need to do is like, look at the bigger picture, look at how many communities are affected. And like the other issue with that is like white people are often defining. <laughs> right. And that's and, and it's basically whoever defines it is the one who basically gets to determine right. what strategy is enacted. And, and just to be clear right. to our listeners, you're referring possibly to the article, Colorado is committed to solving environmental injustices, but first have to agree on what those are exactly, which was yes. published on May 20th. Uh, of this year. Uh, yes. In that article, since we're in that space, I want to go ahead and cite one of the major issues that was brought up. In Colorado in September of 2013, there were heavy rainstorms that led to two rivers flooding in Weld County, completely overtaking the Evergreen Mobile Home Park, which housed mainly, I believe, Latino families. Mm-hmm. Uh, but later it was discovered that federal emergency maps that were more than 30 years old failed to show that these mobile home parks were in a flood zone. According to a study uh, last year, by the American Society of um, Civil Engineers, uh, civil engineers, excuse me. Now, sure. across the state of Colorado, low-income Black, Latino, and Indigenous communities have had to deal with environmental hazards that include oil and gas wells next to schools. I mean, it's just amazing. <laughs> Refineries right next to homes. There yeah. are even stories of homes being built on top of Superfund sites. 
Mm -hmm. for people who don't know what those are, those are basically toxic landfills, right? Right. I just, how, how is this even possible that I don't even know where to begin (laughs) with the proper question for this, Yeah. but but how is it? And then one of the other things that kind of came out from this study is that these same groups of people are also disproportionately affected by the causes and effects of climate change. Yep. Could you explain how that relates to the proximity to these like refineries and such? How um, climate change basically disproportionately affects these same types of communities, specifically speaking about the communities in Colorado. Okay. So um, for example, um, in these low income areas that aren't really receiving, you know, financial support from the government, there's just a lot of resources they lack. So like there's food deserts, they don't have access to adequate food. Um, There's not really any um, upkept parks or like good uh, plant life there that can sequester out all, which is like filter out all of the, um, the air pollutants. And so, (laughs) you know, heat, heat strokes are more common there, like the heat Island effect, which basically, um, is when heat accumulates within certain areas because there's not really that much plant life or there's Ah. too much, yeah, there's too much carbon or like, you know, bad pollutants circulating within the region. Mm. So that's just one of many examples, but there's just so many injustices people in lower income neighborhoods um, face, which often are like people of color, Latino, Native American, um, and black, like they just face so much and there's, there's so much we have to do, but everybody's just trying to figure out where to start. And that's one thing I'm like, how about you just ask them like, Right. But also the other part is educating people about the community right. that in, in, in which they live in the toxic uh, harms that may exist around them. Exactly. The mother of what we now call environmental equity, her name was Hazel Johnson. Yeah. And there's an article about her recently as well. Uh, just for our listeners, Hazel Johnson's mother and a wife of a mother of seven children. She, her husband, and her children relocated from, I believe, Louisiana, if I remember the story correctly, to Chicago, to the Mm -hmm. southeast side of Chicago in about the late 50s. After about 10 years, her husband dies of lung cancer, and then all of her children come down with these mysterious illnesses, but thankfully, none of them passed to my knowledge. But shortly thereafter, several other children in her community did die. Now, by now, Mrs. Johnson had already formed the People for Community Recovery, which she created to to uh, revitalize the physical aspects of her community, you know, the grounds and, and the maintenance. But after hearing about children dying, she also incorporated a part that reached out to legislators to educate them about what life was like for her and her neighbors in her community and bringing them, bringing to their attention that she and her her community basically lived in an area she called a toxic donut, completely surrounded by uh, these companies that were spewing out pollutants directly toward and around her community. Now, how was a government-sponsored public housing building constructed in the first place in the middle of a toxic zone and the government not already know about it? How is that even? I mean, that's the first question that comes to mind. Um, 
she and others kind of went back and forth with legislators and now recently posthumously she's being rewarded a, a medal of excellence but when you hear about stories like this what does this make you think as far as the work that you're trying to do and the, and the results that you're trying to accomplish um so i i have a lot of feelings about this of course <laughs> um you know I took an environmental justice course at UNC and we learned about how the general accounting office a lot like between the sixties and eighties did like this intensive study about like, you know, where hazardous waste sites are placed. And, you know, they obviously found that they were um, located predominantly in black communities and their excuses were just like, Oh, well, it's because of the, the G like um, the geology of the land. Like they made all of these excuses. And so I just think a lot about like, how many excuses are made <laughs> and justifications to like um, place people of color, underrepresented people of color in, you know, these communities. And I also think about like a lot of issues like gentrification and how population succession shifts over time, you know, white flight, how white people like, you know, come into neighborhoods once, you know, others are kicked out and, you know, vice versa. We're forced to live in areas that don't really have much support or resources. And so, you know, there's so much I want to do, but it's just like, you know, black people and other people of color, we should be allowed to do this work but are we going to get the support that we need? Because mm -hmm. I've, I've been in spaces where, you know, I give, I can give all the suggestions I want, but are you all going to listen to me? Right. How I'm, is your, how is your interaction with other people of color when you come in there into those communities, perhaps to try to educate them about environmental harms that might be around them or just educate them in general when it comes to environmental equity? So first, I think the important thing is like, to listen to what they go through, like, you know, be as open to them and then, you know, tell them, be clear about what your purpose is in those spaces and how you want to help. And if they want help, you know, make a plan of moving forward. But I think the most important thing is to just listen to them, see what they're going through and try and move forward from there. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you know, in one of my, in the study I ran, um, a lot of people, a lot of the participants mentioned that they wish they had access to information like conservation all of those practices like i asked them about like have you ever been interested in this that this that they're like you know i never have been given this information to begin with so if we start by you know secondly giving them information and access to different programs and the support they need i think you know we'd be closer to you know obviously we won't solve it but we'd be closer to mitigating a lot of the issues they faced is this just about finding a legislative band-aid or is there something else we're missing? You know, it, it seems like there's a big chunk of something we're not really addressing when it comes to environmental equity. Yeah, and in the the quote I was mentioning, how the, the young lady was basically talking about how air quality, we should just focus on air quality. There's just so many things we have to focus on. Like, you know, they're saying we have to focus on one thing at a time. And I'm like, what people don't realize is like, we as black people, even we don't have the luxury of focusing on one thing at a time. Like <laughs> I saw this quote that was saying like, we're in two pandemics. We have to fight the police. We have to, we have to, you know, worry about COVID. And then just like all these other factors. We don't have the luxury of just focusing on like racism. We have to also focus on the, it's intersection with like climate injustices and like, you know, geographic um, 
you know, locations and all that other stuff. And just like, there's all that included with like education and, you know, Paul, it's connected in every way. So we have to look at it from like, how can we get multiple people helping in different ways? But then also, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Cause it's just like politics have just become so messy in this country. It's just, it's been normalized that politics are just so messy. And it just seems like whenever they want to help, it seems like they just want to feel, fulfill some type of agenda or, you know what I mean? Like they just want, they just want people on their side, but when they get on their side, it see, it feels like it changes and like all this other stuff. And so I feel like we just have like a ton of work to do, yeah. but with so little time. And obviously it's not just legislation. It makes me sad that it's just like legislation is like the main, like decision like say all be all for everything right i think legislation right now just because of the infrastructure bill that looks like it's in compromise right now they're starting mm -hmm. to compromise on some things i think a lot of this discussion is coming up because of the definition of infrastructure what mm -hmm. it means and because it's so foundational and it affects all of our lives in some way uh, we just really didn't realize you know mm -hmm. how it had done it before i i know that I knew some things, but didn't know some things, right? right? Depending upon where you live in this country and your experiences. But hearing about the story about Hazel Johnson and her family and other families, you hear about small town families that didn't have a voice. You'll hear about indigenous communities. But what I, what I wonder is what should the takeaway be for all of us when we hear about these stories, whether they're in our own communities or not? What could we or should we be doing? I say like a, a big takeaway could be like, <laughs> do better, reflect um, on how you move in these spaces. And that's one thing I thought we would at least get out of this pandemic was just like we, capitalism finally is on hold for a minute, but you know, obviously raging toxic masculinity and like all these other factors, like <laughs> impacting everything, you know, is right. kind of putting that on hold. Right. Um, but I thought that, it would give us a moment to like sit at home, reflect on ourselves, how we can be better, learn some new things, just be better people. But, you know, <laughs> we're so used to going, going, going and just buying, buying, buying and doing all this stuff. And, you know, like I remember I saw this other quote. Um, I was walking through my neighborhood one day and I saw someone had this big sign up. It was just like, you know, if you don't know any kind people, you be that kind person, like you be that example. And I think a lot of people mm. could learn from that, like be right. a better person. You don't have mm. to have an example to be better. And I think there's so many different pressures um, in different communities that we have to face, like, you know, <laughs> but it still is not an excuse. Cause like, why hasn't it taken, why has it taken like 400 plus years to have a conversation about racism? That's there's, a good there's, question. there's no, you know, and people always try to dismiss it. Oh, I'm colorblind. And it's just like, no, like stop being colorblind because you're, you're actively ignoring, you know, what our, our struggles are. You're ignoring it. You're choosing right. to ignore it. And you're trying to put us on the same playing field when that's not the case. And it has never been the case, right? Never, you know? And so, and you're, and, you know, white silence, white violence, period. So 
<laughs> now, I have an interesting uh, bit of feedback that came to me as I was researching this topic. Now, there are some advocates who say that we need to learn how to listen to nature more when we're identifying uh, areas where our environment is starting to basically become ill, for lack of a better phrase. And it helps, it will help us to determine whether or not uh, our, our particular environment is polluted to a point where we shouldn't be there ourselves. But my question that I didn't get a chance to ask was, how do you do that in concrete centers, in urban centers where there isn't a lot of nature? How do you listen to nature? How do you know outside of your government agency telling you that there's a brownfield zoned down yeah. the street from you? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that aspect, but it seems like that would only work in more rural areas. What yeah. do you think about that? So I think something that's really important is education like in these lower income neighborhoods this made me think about how like you know i hear people all the time you know say like oh well like people in lower income areas they live that way because of blah 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 and it's like no because they don't have access to again all these resources such as education they don't know what potentials out there because they've been taught all their lives that this is okay mm -hmm. and that they're going that they're going to be stuck in this like you know, <laughs> social class or within this social glass ceiling or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, I think it's important to educate people, but in urban areas, I think it's important to take people out of those areas and show them like what this could potentially be and like how we could connect the two. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a way. It's just like, if people are willing to, it's all about money at the end of the day. It's all about money, If right. you know, how are we allocating our funds? Because like the budget police, the police have, is, it's ineffable. It, it's, it, it's disgusting. And like just other things, like I feel like this country, again, I'm gonna bring it up, hypermasculinity, we have just, there's nothing, I'll say this, there's nothing wrong with masculinity and hypermasculinity is basically when it affects the well-being of others around you so much to where it's just like, <laughs> it's just, it's so bad. And you know, I've been, I just noticed like we invest so much in like sports and all this, which is not a bad thing, like, you know, okay, but can we bring that same energy with other things mm -hmm. like the environment? And it just seems like this country is just like very, we're, we're, we pick and choose what we want to care about. And so, you know, I feel like a lot of the time when it comes to understanding what the environment needs, you know, we notice like, oh, you know, it's too late and it's just like, Okay, like, right, right, <laughs> let's, right. Let, yeah, let's normalize paying attention to the environment and listening to the environment. And there's people who already do that, but it's just like, let's, let's create discourse in different spaces that don't normally create discourse mm -hmm. around the environment. And so, and then act on it as well. Cause a lot of people, you know, these days we'll just talk about it. We can spend hours and upon hours upon hours talking about it, but what are we gonna do to actively change it? And you know, with that, we're going to have to let that be the last word. That is a very powerful last word. And this certainly does not end the discussion. Thank you, Joelle, yeah. so much. And I'm sure there is, is, like I said before, so much more for us to cover. I really appreciate your contribution to this topic. And we definitely have to have you back to, to talk about some things as we get past this legislation. We'll see which way they decide to go and and learn more about the work that you're, the powerful work that you're doing in your spaces. Yeah. Now, for those of you who want to join in the discussion, reach out, reach out to 
to us on our website at pointcast.news for future podcasts. We love to thank our sponsor, Eliac Productions, for their continued support. And to all of our listeners, keep the conversation going. That's it, good people. Have a good one, and be sure to join us next time.